One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, you're listening to The BIP Show. BIP is for business, investing and policy, and that's what we're here to talk about. I'm Paul Colgan, Director at CT Group, and I'm here with James Whelan, Micro Strategist and Investment Manager at VFS Group here in Sydney. How are you, James? Great, mate. It's, it's always good. Uh, Ken Vexler is with us in spirit, but he has important commitments, uh, but he will definitely be back with us next week. I know many uh, listeners will be sad he's not here, given that we're going to talk a bit about modern monetary theory this week. Uh, we're in Sydney, as I said, recording on the 24th of July, 2020. Our guest this week is Stephen Kirchner, uh, Director of Trade and Investment at the US Studies Centre uh, here in Sydney. Stephen, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Stephen is going to bring the average IQ on the panel up to at least 100, James. Um, <laughs> he's, he's got a fantastic background in macroeconomics and, uh, and policy advisory. His uh, 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 PhD in economics is uh, in monetary economics. Uh, so he's exactly the kind of person we want to have on the show. Uh, he ticks all my boxes for a chat because he's, as I mentioned, he's got an interest in modern monetary theory, um, but he also has some criticisms of it. And he's an expert in the US economy uh, and politics. So Stephen, well, Welcome, we're thrilled to have you here on The BIP Show. So first things first, let's talk about uh, the Just Frydenberg horror show today. Uh, Treasurer update us on the projected state of the federal budget um, and just no good news anywhere. Well, the budget is a reflection of the state of the economy and I don't think we should have expected a good set of budget numbers in these circumstances. Uh, the budget was going to get smashed by the pandemic, regardless of what the government did in terms of policy, but I think... What the government has been doing on the policy front has been important and necessary and they needed to do more even before what happened in Melbourne. I think what happened in Melbourne just underscored the case for fiscal policy, uh, extending some of the measures that were adopted uh, earlier in the year. Um, so the budget numbers, uh, people have said that they're some of the worst since World War II. Well, it's a reflection of the fact that the economy is being subjected to the worst adverse shock since World War II. Yeah, indeed. Um, and I think an interesting part of this is that, um, you know, while there is the fiscal spending, there's also the, you know, the, the drag on the budget bottom line is really uh, mainly about the collapse in company taxes and income taxes from rising unemployment and companies not making any money. Mm. Yes, but I think it's worth bearing in mind, and the government is right to emphasise this, that our net debt position uh, as a share of GDP is still low by international standards. And I think this is a reflection of the fact that the government, uh, or successive governments, in fact, have done what governments should do, and that's run reasonably disciplined fiscal policy in good times. And that means you can respond aggressively to adverse shocks like the pandemic. Yeah. Does it concern you where we are, though? I mean, yes, we're, we're, we've done better than other uh, countries, but um, uh, this is looking like potentially a U-shaped recovery. Um, we are going to be; it's going to be a long time before the, the economy returns to um, its former size and the size it was, you know, last year. 
Um, you know, there's, you know, a million people uh, out of work now. Um, does the um, the government was saying today, um, the treasurer uh, and uh, Matthias Corman, the fi- finance minister, they're saying, you know, it's going to be at least a decade. But really, this is going to be a generational issue, isn't it? It's going to be in deficits for generations now. I mean, I agree with all those concerns. Um, I think the pandemic will have a, a lasting economic impact. Uh, it will be felt, uh, as you say, uh, on a generational basis. Uh, there's actually a fair bit of economic research looking at past pandemics and, and shocks like this. Um, and they've been shown to have persistent effects going out 20, 30, 40 years. Um, so there's ample historical precedent for the sort of scenario you're outlining. Mm. Um, and yes, this will be reflected in the budget. I mean, the, the fiscal position is always going to be a reflection of the state of the economy. Um, what I think it really does emphasise is the need for the government to start implementing pro-growth policies as soon as feasible. Mm. Um, the, the best way to improve your net debt position and the budget balance in the long run is to grow the economy quickly. Uh, And that means you need to start looking at structural reform. And I think the government's already made noises in this direction. They're very conscious of the need to get growth going again because that's going to be the best way to address the fiscal side of things. Uh, One of the things that I saw that was interesting to me in terms of the assumptions about growth and where it's going to come from is that those numbers are based on numbers that we saw uh, the Treasurer hand down today are based on international travel resuming on the 1st of January with (laughs) with quarantine. Uh, Optimistic, uh, perhaps. but um, where do you? What we talked a bit, a bit about this uh, last week as well. But what do you see the, the the changes being in the economic mix going forward as a result of this? Well, I think the big problem that we have is that to the extent that we're successful in either suppressing or eliminated COVID domestically, we still have the problem that COVID is rampant internationally. And for a small urban economy, what that means is basically living in a bubble. Uh, and that's not a great position to be in. And for those industries that rely on international connections, so higher education, uh, tourism, and so on, you know, this is a significant problem. Mm. So I suspect part of what's going to happen here is we'll actually see a, a change in the structural composition of the Australian economy, that um, people will move out of those affected industries in, into other industries. But that's not something that happens overnight. It's a... That's a long-term adjustment, and while that adjustment's taking place, it's obviously bad for economic activity. Uh, so we think about tourism um, in particular? Yeah, tourism and higher ed. I mean, the, the big problem here is, I mean, suppose we're successful in uh, eliminating the virus or suppressing it to the point where it's, it's not a major concern domestically. We still have the problem that it's rampant internationally, uh, and that's going to make it very hard, for example, to bring international students here, very expensive to bring uh, tourists here. Uh, And so it's very hard to see the way forward for those industries, um, certainly in the absence of a a vaccine. Mm. 
Yeah. Um, so I suppose one of the things is uh, we've we've talked a bit about this since the very start of the of the BIP show. I think on our first um, on our first episode, we talked about how the limits of the the data at the moment, uh, because nobody really knows what the recovery is going to um, look like in the current environment, where you have people sort of in suspended animation on on JobKeeper. Um, some people are effectively precluded from looking for work because the areas in which they work are shut down. You know, the unemployment rate doesn't mean as much as it as it normally would. Yeah, it's like so. a like a like an artificial sort of everything is artificial. That 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 this is an employment an, an unemployment rate that is for now. Yep. It but, seems so. No, 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 yeah, yeah, but I don't think we need to know the unemployment rate at the nearest no, percentage point. So yeah, you know, ten percent is as bad as fifteen. As yeah. bad as twenty, right? So, yeah, it, it, a, a thousand and and debt. This is it's these are numbers that I just don't care. I've expected the worst. I've already factored in the worst as an as an investor, as someone who's advising people on things. Like, imagine the worst, and okay, they came out and said some bad things. I, like, I it, it, I just physically do not. I don't care. Well, you know, you need to know the number, but I, don't, I just I just don't care. But yeah. but the thing that gets me is that how much it still feels like, and this reflects something that I've said before, it still feels like that everyone is talking past tense. We're not even close to past tense at the moment. We're still in it. We still don't know what it actually looks like to get out of. And that's, that's still what gets me that everyone is saying, and this is a government that's, that's, that, that's great for playing, uh, what, what, what is the expression, uh, the future, future past present tense? Remember the budget? Uh, I'm bringing the... the, the Budget back into surplus we've brought, next year. We've, yeah, we've brought the budget. We've brought the budget back into surplus next year. That's the, the future past present tense, and and it just seems like a little bit too much past tense is still getting talked about before we've even grasped what an exit actually looks like. And as you said, we're doing okay. It could be better. We're a couple of weeks away from just getting out of it, just seeing the window of what 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 New Zealand is experienced now. But the rest of the world, like. How do you how do you how do you survive? How do you get out of that? What's going on in the US is going to affect the entire planet. The largest economy is going to affect the rest of the planet. The fact that they've been unable, or the or the fact that they've sorry, diplomatically speaking, the fact that they've handled it differently from 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 the rest of it. I thought one thing that was interesting this week was in the Lancet published that that uh, study saying that the the Oxford vaccine trial had yep. been going reasonably well. Uh, and equity markets didn't move pretty much. Um, so what does that tell you? Um, that the idea of having a vaccine is priced in to where we are now in terms of, you know, so, so there is an assumption that yeah. there will be a vaccine yep. in about within 12 months um, and uh, growth will be able to return to, nor- to normal. Now, obviously... Alternatively, the markets could have just been discounting that the vaccine... Uh, story um, really changed anything that they've got a low probability priced in for any sort of vaccine and the publication in the Lancet didn't change that I mean, that would be an equally valid interpretation yes true uh, and also more bearish <laughs> yes absolutely yeah, yeah. Um, which uh, so like I, I find it um, like a, a, I um, anytime I really get my head into the numbers, I looked at the NAB quarterly business survey today. You know, and previously, if you ever saw a um, if you ever saw a minus number on employment, you know that'd be bad news. Um, and there was minus one in March. You know, bad. 
Um, but uh, it was like minus 27, I think, uh, in terms of employment intentions for businesses. And I find when I when I get my head into some of this stuff that, uh, um, you know, I, I, I do get quite bearish about it. Like I'm naturally optimistic. I do think we're going to be able to overcome this with um, policy, a mix of policy and science and um, people's entrepreneurship and people pulling together. Uh, uh, but when you look at the data, sometimes uh, it's hard not to sort of the grey clouds to um, to come in over your head. Um, how do you think about it, Stephen? Do you think there's going to be a um, strong recovery from here? Um, and you know, because given all of the global tensions that there are, um, uh, uncertainty in the US, um, what's happening with the US and China, Europe, you know, France having a monster recession. Um, how do you think about it? Well, I think the Australian economy, the US economy and, and other economies are all at the mercy uh, of the virus, uh, which has a rather unpredictable um, path that it cuts through these different economies. Um, and so a lot depends on you know, what the virus does, how successful we are in, uh, in containing it. Um, I think what we've seen in Australia in the last few weeks may be representative in that uh, I think where you don't eliminate the viruses they have in New Zealand, then you're probably going to have to live with uh, periodic outbreaks, which means sort of a seesaw going backwards and forwards between you know, varying degrees of lockdown. Um, and that will obviously result in a lot of macroeconomic volatility. Mm. So it's also consistent with, with fairly low uh, trend growth. Uh, so it may well be that growth becomes very volatile as we go through these cycles of uh, you know, lockdown and containment. Mm. James, cheer me up here. Can't. Sorry, mate. That's how it's going to go. I, start, I started the day talking to uh, David Scott, and uh, that, that, that set me on the mood for the rest of the day. Okay, I get to be a, a passenger on this because I'm actually – are we leading to MMT? Is that what we're doing? We're yeah, doing we're, we're, do, do, do you want to do it? Tell you what, let's talk about it after the break. We'll be right back. Good. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome back to The BIP Show. Paul Colgan here in Sydney with James Whelan and our guest is Stephen Kirchner, uh, Director of the Trade and Investment Program at the uh, US Studies Centre here in Sydney. So we were just, James, you raised this before, we're going to talk about MMT. Lots of people call this money printing. It isn't. <laughs> I, I, but it is a different way of thinking about 
government spending, currency, um, central bank balance sheets, all of that kind of stuff. Now, I'm delighted that we have uh, uh, Stephen. I asked Stephen just before the show what his PhD focused on. I know, I know he has an interest in, in, in MMT, uh, but uh, he explained that his PhD was in uh, monetary economics. So uh, I'm doubly excited. Um, so I think there's a... Um, there is an awful lot of confusion about what MMT really constitutes. Um, I think one of the best uh, lines in Stephanie Kelton's book, The Deficit Myth, which has kind of been behind the renewed conversation around this, is that it's a way of looking at the world that's a bit like one of those stereograms, you know, where you it looks like a whole bunch of dots on a page, but if you look at it the right way, align your eyes the right way, you see dolphins jumping through waves in three dimensions or something. <laughs> stereogram. Oh. Yeah, I think they're called stereograms. Okay, yeah. go with it. Yeah. Um, so, and to be honest, it's that that's the best sort of way I can think about it. Like, you, you've got to think about, to, to understand what MMT is, you've got to think about government funding differently. Um, at least that's my understanding. But Stephen, maybe you can talk about how you see it and how you think about it. In many ways, MMT is part of a part of the mainstream of macroeconomic theory. I mean, macroeconomics has always recognised that there are situations in which fiscal policy can dominate monetary policy in the setting of the price level, and therefore the the determination of the inflation rate. Uh, so there's nothing new there. I mean, it's really a function of what is the institutional setup between fiscal policy and monetary policy. So do you separate those things out through different institutions um, or do you effectively merge them? Mm. Um, so this is about independent yeah. central banks versus ones that are more controlled by Treasury. Yeah. 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 And MMT in many ways was Australia's lived experience in the 1970s and probably right up until 1982 uh, when they adopted the current tender system for uh, government bond issuance. Um, so you'll remember, you know, we had a fixed exchange rate back then. You had government um, monetary financing and fiscal policy because the, the Reserve Bank would pick up uh, some of the government's uh, financing task. Uh, so in that situation, f uh, the price level and the inflation rate was really determined by fiscal policy and the occasional exchange rate revaluation rather than the monetary policy. Um, and so we effectively had a central bank that was subordinate to, to fiscal policy. Um, so we've been there and the macroeconomic out outcomes weren't that good <laughs> uh, and that's why we moved away from it. Um, so my favourite joke about uh, MMT is that it's the theory that the 1970s never happened. Um, <laughs> okay. yeah. um, my other favourite joke about MMT and apologies to the person on Twitter who I borrowed this from and I can't remember their name but um, they said that MMT was a little bit like asking the question, can you microwave a fork? And the answer is yes, well, the fork will fit in the microwave and the microwave will switch on when you, with the fork in it. Um, that doesn't mean you should microwave a fork. That's right. And I, I think what happens with the MMT people is they talk about everything up to the point where you push the button on the microwave and they don't want to talk about what happens after. Mm -hmm. Uh, but we know from Australia's experience what happened after in the 1970s to control inflation. They had extensive wage and price controls. They had financial repression. We had regulated interest rates. You know, the mortgage interest rate in Australia used to be set by a committee of federal cabinet. 
Uh, Good now, times. Now, the MMT people might not have a problem with all of those things, yeah, yeah, but yeah. Um, I certainly do. And, you know, there's a reason why we moved away from all of that. Mm. Yeah. Uh, no, so, no, no, keep, keep it going. You're in, full, yeah. you're in full flight. Go, go. So, and I think it's important to remember why it was that politicians made central banks independent in the first place. So around the world and especially in Australia uh, in the early 1990s, uh, it was decided, or politicians decided, that monetary policy was so potent that they really couldn't trust themselves with it. And so the answer to that problem was to hand monetary policy to uh, an independent monetary authority, give them the task of setting the price level and the inflation rate, uh, but more importantly, the task of managing aggregate demand. And that meant that fiscal policy could focus on structural issues like um, incentivising the supply side, you know, creating incentives to work, save and invest. That's something that fiscal policy can do quite well. And it alleviated the government of the, the burden of demand management. And more recently, you'll have noticed that central banks, uh, including the RBA and the Fed, have been underperforming against their mandate. So the RBA hasn't been meeting its agreement with the government on inflation past uh, six years or so. Um, and even before the pandemic, central banks were increasingly saying to governments, well, you need to do more with fiscal policy to help manage aggregate demand. And if it's the case that central banks, for whatever reason, are not meeting their mandate, then I think politicians might legitimately say, well, what's the point of an independent central bank? I mean, if the, if the central bank is saying to me that I need to use my fiscal policy instruments to stabilise aggregate demand, uh, then why do we need an independent monetary authority? Why don't we just go back to a situation where fiscal policy dominates monetary policy? And there you go. And I think that's the danger that central banks are running at the moment, that uh, by not meeting their mandate, they're actually delegitimising their own independence and undermining the legitimacy of monetary policy. What if what okay what 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 if I said that central banks sorry uh, I'm thinking about ours but more importantly I'm thinking about the US that one of the hallmarks of an investment uh, as uh, you know as an investor and your portfolio manager and you're actually looking at countries and you're looking at what the investability is of a particular country the independence of central banks is actually one of those hallmarks right so you, you give it a score the US uh, can we talk about the US is, is it like I'm I'm happy to Clang, of clang on over there. Like, uh, the, the, is the US, is the Fed independent anymore? Well, you have to remember that central banks are functions of the legislation that institutes those bodies. Uh, and it's always open to Parliament or Congress to change that legislation. Um, and so to that extent, no, they're not independent. Um, they are creations of the legislature. Um, but, of course, the, the statutes governing central banks typically have a division of powers between, say, the monetary authority on the one hand and, and the fiscal authority and the government on the other. Uh, so, for example, if you look at the RBA Act, the RBA Act has provisions whereby the government can override a decision of the RBA board if it chooses to do so. Um, and in that situation, the statute requires that the government uh, and the central bank table in parliament their respective reasons for you know, disagreeing. Now, those provisions have never been invoked for the obvious reason that 
uh, it would be very damaging both to the government of the day and, and the central bank for, for that to occur. A good, um, a good but, stink but, over um, what the interest rate should be, what the cash rate should be, would be, um, would be fun though. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, the government deciding though, you know, we need rates lower. <laughs> like, um, and just uh, reminds me of that, that, uh, that whole idea of a mortgage rates being set by a committee. I mean, gee. Um, but sorry, continue. And in fact, in the UK, recently, the Treasury in the UK set up a facility where it could, in fact, borrow directly from the central bank. Um, so that separation between monetary and fiscal policy has already been breached. One of the issues with with MMT is this idea that you, like central banks currently, um, sacrifice workers. Um, and this is where MMT, I suppose, um, goes from being a, a, an accounting uh, argument to more a social and political argument, which is questioning what is the role of central banks in supporting the economy um, what should their mandate be? You, meant, you mentioned, you know, the legislation and the the goals that the, that any central bank is set up to do. So the RBA, for example, um, you know, is to is is set up. You you may um, be able to um, remind me of the wording, but you know, for the the whole of Australian society and towards full employment and and having everybody um, you know healthy, but also having inflation within two to three percent. Now. Uh, Stephanie Kelton and others argue that once inflation starts approaching maybe 3% or whatever, that the RBA will lift rates and it will literally throw workers under the bus um, by stopping uh, job creation at a certain level um, because they don't want inflation to get out of uh, out of control. But I sort of wonder whether or not that that's just something that can be dealt with in... With, with fiscal policy anyway. I mean, they talk about, well, you can just, you know, have a job guarantee for every single person. Um, and isn't that something that you don't really need to change anything for, uh, you don't really need to change anything uh, in terms of how you think about the central bank um, to do that with public policy? I mean, both the US Federal Reserve and the RBA have full employment mandates in their statutes. Um, and I would actually agree with Stephanie Kelton that central banks have been throwing workers under a bus, but for a slightly different reason. Uh, both in the US and Australia, I think both central banks were guilty of overestimating where the natural rate of unemployment sat. And so what this meant was they were running tight monetary policy in the anticipation that the declining unemployment rate would lead to a, an acceleration in inflation. And both the Fed and the RBA have conceded since then that this was a mistake, that in fact the Nehru, as they call it, the non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment was much lower than they thought. Uh, so in that sense, I think they were throwing workers under a bus, not intentionally, but through a simple policy error. Um, there's a very good outfit in the United States called Employ America, uh, headed up by Sam Bell, uh, who is very much on top of this issue. One of the things he's been doing is been going back through the record of FOMC members and 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 how they voted, and holding them to account for their <laughs> errors in this regard. God forbid, uh, especially in the context of Senate confirmation of uh, members of the FOMC. And so he's been really holding their feet to the fire, saying, you know, you made a mistake. And I think 
what this comes down to is you shouldn't run monetary policy uh, navigating by the stars. So this expression, navigating by the stars, refers to, uh, in macroeconomics, we refer to the natural unemployment rate as U star and the natural interest rate as R star. Now, the problem with both of those variables is that they're unobservable. You have to impute where they are. And if you make a mistake doing that, then you're going to get miscalibrated monetary policy. Now, this is ultimately the argument for nominal income or nominal GDP targeting, which doesn't require you to take a view on R star or U star. And so I think that's the, the advantage of that system. Uh, if you were to institute nominal income targeting in place of inflation targeting, then I think you would have less of a problem with throwing workers under a bus. And that would address the concern that Stephanie Kelton raised. So, okay, with the MMT discussion and, and, and a lot of what's going on, and I'm sort of going to draw this a bit of a segue as we go. Put it in real terms. Put it in, put, put, draw for me a picture in which this becomes a reality. MMT? Yes. Yes, oh, in, in the states, because because yeah. that's that, that that's where that would happen. Okay, well, you, we've got you, an election. Yeah, we've got an election. You put a fork in a microwave and, and press. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> a couple of forks yeah. in the microwave, right? So, 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 under what circumstances does it actually become a reality? Because mm. this, again, myself, my real job, my, my my actual real thing. What 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 does it actually really look like? Well, I think the way it would develop would be uh, governments coming to the view that, well, if the, the central bank is not going to meet its uh, inflation and full employment mandates through its use of monetary policy instruments, then it'll have to be done through fiscal policy instruments. And that, by, defini by definition, means that the, the uh, fiscal authority ends up setting the price level and the inflation rate. Uh, and I mean, there are sufficient statutory authorities existing in the legislation of both the RBA and the Fed that would uh, allow that to happen, I think. But, um, but, but answer this for me. Which, is this kind of not happening by stealth anyway? Because, um, you know, there, there doesn't appear to be any firepower left in central banking policy, and particularly like with conventional interest rate settings. To, it just doesn't seem to be working anywhere. Uh, I, I disagree. Um, I think monetary policy is always potent. Uh, you might argue that it's less effective per basis point of change in interest rates or uh, change in, in the money base. Um, but that doesn't matter because if you look at QE, it is an infinitely scalable policy instrument. So if the argument is that monetary policy is having less of an effect, well, that just means that you need to do more with your monetary policy instruments. And uh, there's no, in principle, limit to what you can do with QE. Um, so I think part of the problem here is that central banks have been far too reluctant to make use of the instruments that are available to them. Right. Um, so are you convinced that with a um, doubling or tripling of reserve bank balance sheet that you would see uh, inflation rise? Well, it's interesting, in Governor Lowe's speech uh, the, the day before yesterday, uh, one of his criticisms of monetary financing and fiscal policy was that it would be highly inflationary. And so the question I'd put to Governor Lowe is, well, if monetary financing and fiscal policy is inflationary, then why isn't the monetary policy able to generate inflation? Um, 
And I think it can, it just requires more aggressive use of, of monetary policy instruments. Um, so, I mean, to illustrate this, I think it's useful to think of it in terms of a thought experiment, the limiting case where the central bank buys every equity and debt security in the economy. <laughs> okay. Now, in between where we are now and that limiting case, <laughs> some people would argue that don't you think that yeah. the public would be so saturated with liquidity that this would lead to extra spending and inflation? Yes. Okay. So, yeah. so it is possible for central banks to to generate inflation, yeah. um, and I think the problem with the the RBA and the Fed in particular is, and, and this has been a, a phenomenon more or less since the, the global financial crisis, is they've been uh, far too timid, mm. and not aggressive enough. Uh, and I think it's a problem in Australia at the moment where if you look at what the RBA did in late March in response to the pandemic, I mean, what did we get from the RBA? We got a quarter point interest rate cut, some slightly stronger forward guidance, and the threat of intervention in the bond market if the bond market didn't view that uh, commitment as credible um, in terms of the three-year bond yield. Now, a quarter basis point cut. Um, now, obviously, monetary policy is a cumulative thing. It's a partly a function of you know, things that happened before. But a quarter point cut in the official cash rate in response to the biggest shock to the Australian economy since World War II... I think is a grossly inadequate response. Yeah, uh, and and they only ended up buying something like fifty billion dollars worth of of bonds. Uh, yeah, I mean the RBA does not want to expand its balance sheet, and so yield curve control is the the mechanism they've adopted to do that. If their commitment to hold the cash rate steady at point two five percent for three years is fully credible. Um, then they probably don't need to do much by way of intervention. So what extra do you think they, they could have done? Um, buying lots of 10 years, holding down the 10-year rate, um, uh, uh, buying other securities? What? Uh, I would have made a commitment to buy uh, government and non-government securities across the board. Um, I would have put on the bonds, table. Bonds only? Uh, so government and corporate bonds. Got, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, I would have put on the table the option to buy equity securities as well. Not because you would necessarily want to go out and do it straight away, but just tabling that option I think would have had an effect on you know, credit spreads, for example. Uh, I would have think it would have had an effect on the, the equity market. So put all those options on the table uh, and then start buying assets until such time as you've your statutory mandate. So um, what about the, uh, the question about where this ends? So like how do you, because we've seen what happens in the States when the Fed tried just a tiny bit to start um, offloading some of the bonds on its balance sheet and we had the, the taper tantrum. Um, um, we had rattled equity markets um, uh, uh, and... Um, you know, any time that the Fed has looked like um, tightening a little bit has kind of caused all sorts of problems. Uh, and then what happens? So, they, so, what, so what happens is they stay pat; they don't move. Then the next time there's a little bit of a shock or a problem, they have to turn on the taps again. But the effective stance of U.S. monetary policy was much tighter than their policy instruments would would imply. So if you go back to, say, August 2009 at the end of QE2, in August 
2009 Fed fund futures had 300 basis points of tightening priced into them, you know, regardless right. of the actual Fed funds rate. So all through the period since the GFC when the Fed was doing QE, markets were persistently pricing in a tightening in monetary policy. And that was feeding into credit spreads and the term structure. Um, so monetary policy wasn't particularly easy. I would argue that it was too tight. And so what I would argue is that, in fact, what the Fed was doing was they were sending out all these signals that was leading the market to price in these tightenings, but those tightenings were premature. And so then it would have to undo those expectations in the market and recommence QE. Mm. Um, so effectively what the Fed was doing was tightening and retightening conditions uh, all the way through. Um, and so it wasn't the case that you know, monetary policy was completely flat, which is the impression that you get just looking at the target Fed funds rate. Uh, in fact, there was uh, a lot going on in terms of expectations. Yeah. And it was this backwards and forwards between the market and the Fed with the, the market pricing in tightening, that in turn having a depressing effect on macroeconomic conditions, uh, the Fed having then to do more with its actual policy instruments as opposed to you know, expected, yeah. expected rates. Um, uh, and and so we can't forget the, the dynamic as well from, from the White House the talk about, you know, a strong dollar, the confusion over that, um, you know, uh, Mnuchin and Trump sort of once or twice tripping over each other on whether the dollar should be strong, whether whether a strong dollar was helpful for the US economy or not. Um, uh, and also, you know, uh, Trump using his bully pulpit um, to, to, to yell at, uh, at the Fed chairman um, uh, about rates and supporting the stock market. Yeah, I think the danger there was that he was actually constraining the Fed's scope of action because the Fed would be very mindful of the fact that they might be seen to be responding to these political pressures. So if anything, that would make them more reluctant to, to do what Trump wants them to do. Uh, I mean, President Trump in many ways is the master of economic self-sabotage. What do you mean by that? Uh, a lot of what he does uh, undermines the, the, the US economy. So, I mean, he inherited a strong economy. It was doing well in 2017 when he uh, was talking about when he was implementing tax cuts and deregulatory measures. Uh, but when he initiated the trade war from the beginning of 2018, that was when you sort of started seeing the volatility coming into, into equity markets. Um, so I think the, the trade war was Donald Trump shooting himself and uh, even before the pandemic, I think this was having a depressing effect on business investment um, in the United States and, and globally. Now, you know, he would have had a much stronger economy and a stronger stock market if he had not been prosecuting the trade war. That's uh, the 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 the, the, uh, the expression that's been used in our circles is he's got points to play with at the at the current time. When the market was down and the market was off, then he, he you know, one of his uh, negotiation strategies is, is that I'll crash it all. I'll crash it all. The, 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 the deal is off. The Chinese deal is off. That's it. And in March, he didn't have those points to play with for the next, for, for the next stage of the, of the trade war. And now he does. So he's – the annoying thing with Trump is that he uses the market as one of those tools – but also as one of his barometers, if you can sort of understand what I'm saying. This one. like he, 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 he's 
So the market's now back up towards all-time highs and he's, uh, he's, he's got points to play with when, when it comes to the Chinese thing. And this is sort of where I wanted to go with on, on, on what's coming up next, okay? There's an election in November. Yep. Do you want to talk about this? Yes, we do. We actually had a ch- uh, somewhat chilling conversation <laughs> before we came on the show. So he's got – okay, so he's got, he's got points to play with. The Chinese trade war is obviously going to be a thing. Um, just this morning uh, the, 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 the Chinese consulate was asked to depart Houston. They were given 72 hours to, to, to leave. Burning classic sort of diplomatic style, burning, burning documents out the back and, and beautiful fo- video footage of that. And there's going to be more of this US-China – Shenanigans that, that I'll say, the South China Sea and everything that's sort of coming up. And, and there's also a trade war that's coming up too and there's also an election. That's the big part of, of everything. That's sort of what I'm trying to say here. Yeah. So November, a couple of months away, it's big. What's, what's ahead for that? Yeah, I mean, I think you're right to, uh, in terms of your assessment of how Trump sees this, uh, Trump has long had an agenda of decoupling from China. And I think you'll see more and more measures at the margin um, along those lines uh, in the lead up to the election. Um, Trump has, of course, tied the pandemic to China as well. So in a way, by sidling up to China and implementing policies that serve to decouple the US from China, he can kind of present this in some ways as a response to China's culpability for the pandemic. So I think you're right that he will make those connections. Um, I don't know that markets are going to take a particularly favourable view of decoupling measures. I think it's also worth emphasising that the decoupling is coming from both sides. So China has uh, an indigenous innovation strategy where they're looking to become self-sufficient in production of a a lot of things that are currently imported from the US. Um, And so uh, for China, this is not even a problem. I think for President Xi Jinping, it's actually going to encourage him to double down on that strategy. So you've got a decoupling impulse coming from both sides. Um, And I should say that this actually predates the Trump administration to some extent. I think there was the US even before Trump assumed office, was running out of patience with China. Mm. And so you're always going to see decoupling uh, along some dimensions. Uh, the problem with Trump, of course, is that he is doing it in a sort of very mercantilist fashion. Uh, so America first. Um, I think he will uh, do it through mechanisms such as tariffs, which are actually more harmful to the US than, than to China. Um, so, you know, Trump is not completely wrong in his theory of the problem, but where he gets it wrong is in terms of the policy measures that he adopts. Uh, you know, a lot of them are, are self-defeating from a, from a US standpoint. Obviously, you think about the US uh, economy and the political scene a lot. Um, we don't have much time left, but uh, just wanted to maybe ask you what you think is going to happen in November. Sure. Uh, So my expectation for November, and I hope that I am completely wrong about this, but my expectation for November is that it will be a very close result such that it ends up being a disputed election. So we won't have an outcome on November 3rd. Uh, It will go to the Supreme Court. Uh, It will be decided in the Supreme Court sometime in mid-December. 
uh, as was the, the 2000 uh, election. Um, and I think that period of uncertainty about the election result will also be accompanied by widespread politically motivated violence uh, in the US. Um, and that's not just my opinion, it's the opinion of some of the experts in domestic terrorism that we've had come through the centre who have made these forecasts um, as well. So Because they've seen evidence of organisation... Um, yeah, yeah, they're both on the left and the right in the US. There are people who are organising uh, for this, this very outcome. Uh, and so from a market standpoint, obviously this favours you know, trades that take risk off the table. You know, markets <laughs> are not going to like this one bit. So I, I would be very happy to be proven completely wrong in that forecast. Yeah, indeed. But sadly, I think that's where we're going to end up. Uh, it um, certainly would bring a, uh, be quite the, uh, the cap for the year that we've had, uh, you know, 2020. Um, we're, only, we're only halfway through and this is a long way to go. So um, it's been a fantastic year. Um, maybe later on in the year, uh, Stephen, as we get closer to that, uh, we'll get you back on the show and uh, uh, hopefully the outlook will be a little bit better. Um, so, How good are the debates going to be? The debates are going to be absolutely thrilling. <laughs> Watching these two old and the brains are already custard. It is just, it is just going to be marvellous to watch these two and, and hopefully that's during market hours. It'll be, it'll be during hours and it'll be trading futures up and down just based on whatever nonsense these two old guys come out with. And, and I, hope it doesn't, I hope it doesn't come to violence, but it's 2020 and, Paul, you're right, when you least expect it, yeah. expect it. And, it's and, and, and it's just going to hit you like a, like a big pie in the face. Yeah, another, another, and plenty more rabbits in the hat. Um, okay, you can find The Bip Show on iTunes at The Bip Show. We're all on Twitter individually too. It's uh, Stephen Kirchner at uh, the US Study Centre here in Sydney. Uh, and Stephen also has a, a great email that I recommend uh, you uh, subscribe to. Um, it's uh, uh, worth the read. Um, don't forget to hit subscribe and rate the show. Uh, we love those five-star ratings. Thanks, everybody. Uh, the show is produced by Rick Salter and Eamon Connolly. And uh, James, thanks very much. Thanks, Paul. Mate, great episode. Stephen, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm Paul Colgan, and we'll catch you next time. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 